What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. I am, as always, your host and the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts, Noel Jesse Haken. And, and today, I am excited to have on the podcast someone that I have known for, oh gosh, like at least 20, 25 Amy years. forever! <laughs> so wait, is it too long? Is that what you're saying? Is it too long? <laughs> So, so we're going to have a hard time getting through this because we're going to do this to each other a lot. But my friend, Dr. Tammy Smith. And so, Tammy, I just want to very quickly, I always do this at the beginning. I give people three well-known biographical details about someone that are publicly available. And then I want to hear three that maybe they don't know. So the first is that you are a professional counselor. And to put this into context, the uh, we have been on this Zoom call for a half hour. And we haven't even gotten to recording yet because you started counseling me. I love really or was it just we are great friends and walking together in this incredible journey of life so well we'll just probably both let's just leave it at that so that's the first the second is your husband Mike is amazing guy pastor and you have two sons Spencer and Schaefer one if I recall, is very much like Mike, and one is yeah. very much like you. Is that still the case? That was the case 20 years ago. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's so great that you know that one is still extremely a lot like Mike. I was just the host, just the pod, whatever. And then uh, the other one, though, is an amalgamation of the two of us. And so we do say that the one sort of get got the best of us and the worst of us, like the extremes, and the other one has all the stuff in the middle. I remember at a time where your husband said he was talking to the one that was like him, is it Spencer who is like him? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Spencer, yeah. So I, he was talking to Spencer, and Spencer said, "Why do do Mom and Schaefer just love people?" And, and he, and I think Mike said his response was, "Well, they love people because they love people. We love people because we're supposed to." Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. And the third publicly available piece of information is something I did not know until I went to your your site. And that is that you're a competitive tennis player? I mean, yeah, just got off the court. It, no, did you play tennis a lot? I just got off the court. Like legit. you literally, legit. I tonight. play in leagues. Okay, so that was going to be one of the three things. Like, dude, we're already messing That's this okay. up. That's okay. That's <laughs> okay. So that was one of the three things was that uh, little known about me is that I play a ton of tennis. And at this point in my life, being the age that I am, which is no longer young, we're just gonna say that, we're just gonna say it like that. I play tennis with people half my age regularly. We play in leagues, we compete to go to districts, to regionals and nationals. So it is phenomenal. My partners are all my kids age. It is the best, most incredible thing ever. And I'm assuming you could humiliate your husband, Mike. We cannot speak of that here. You may have to edit that out. We cannot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, what yeah. are your other two little known biographies? The other two. I was trying to think about things that are like in this category the of the odd category. And I was like, oh, this is truly little known about me. I have this ridiculous memory for phone numbers when they actually used to be dialed. So I still know the phone numbers of people from 30 years ago. So if you want to ask about my friends, the I, I don't know if I should say their name. Probably shouldn't. So 210- Literally. I'm going to have uh, to beep that out because otherwise people are just going to start calling your friends. I know, right, right, right. And then and the same thing. I mean, I can literally phone numbers of 30 years ago, but no, I can't remember anyone's birthday, like barely my children. 
My best friends cannot remember them. They'll be, they'll be like, you remember my birthday? I'll be like, ah, is it March? They're like, no, December. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just, so it is the weirdest thing to have like still phone numbers in there from all those years ago that I cannot get out. Well, it's probably they're reserving all the number space in your brain. There's got to be a limited amount of number space. Especially this brain. Correct. You are correct. What you're, what you're picking up there is correct. All right. So here's why I'm having you on the podcast. You and I were with a bunch of people sitting and having dinner back in November or December or something last year. And we were talking about the fact that millennials and Gen Z, which by the way, someone just recently said the word Zoomer to me which I love, millennials and Zoomers, that millennials and Zoomers have gained a bit of a reputation of being kind of negative toward church, negative toward spiritual things. And you, like, in our conversation, immediately poo-pooed that. You're like, I don't think that's deserved. And you started to talk about the time that you have spent with, especially, I think, college students, but as you traveled around and, and sp spoke at different events. And I just want to hear what your experience has been with the spiritual lives and the, the curiosity and of, of youngers these days. I'm an, a 50-year-old dude. I need to, to know what people are thinking these days. So what are you hearing out there? Yeah, so the context is this, that I just love the fact that I've gotten the chance to speak uh, in just all sorts of different things around the nation for truly three decades. So I know what that says about my age as well. And all. So that's the context is been able to talk to college students, high school, men, women, all that kind of thing for years and years. And so, you know, COVID shut down that sort of circuit, that sort of opportunity for a while. So then this past fall was the reopening. I think about it was a confluence of everything's reopened. So let's do something. And it was also the, the uh, tributary of like, okay, well, we put you on hold, so come back next year. So it was like that added on. And then also I, at a particular stage in life where my kids weren't doing the sports that they were doing at a collegiate level. And so it opened up a fall like I have never had from, I would say from July through November was the most intense speaking schedule I've ever had just in terms of number and breadth and that kind of thing. Plus the other tributary into the river of why that was, was that churches all realize our people in are in trouble emotional health wise and they chose to do that for sunday morning i have never spoken mm. for as many sunday mornings as i have as this past wow week. it's not my preferred space either by the way but it was phenomenal that so many churches are like our people are in trouble we got to address emotional health and so what a lot of them did series on like depression emotional health what it means yeah and i'll and here's a total tangent the thing that resonated across the board with congregations, people, that kind of thing, not just from the speaking engagements, but for uh, a Sunday morning was grief. We're all grieving. Yeah. Everyday grief. It's not like the grief that people typically have associated with the physical loss of a loved one. It is like, no, I am. Do you understand you're grieving? That's what's going on mm. and how and it looks for all sorts of different persons and personalities. Yeah. And so, you know, people talk about the classic stages of grief. Do you think that people are going through those at different paces? What uh, you're referring to that the listener might not know is Kubler-Ross came up with these traditional stages of grief that she has since recanted, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> wait, until, <laughs> wait until a thousand textbooks are written and then recant it. <laughs> I know, right? But it's been helpful, you know, just as anything, eat the meat, throw out the bones, but it's a helpful rubric for people. These are the kind of the stages of grief that you kind of fluidly go through. They're not linear. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So I just want you to think about literally try to track the pandemic in our culture through that lens and you can oh follow gosh. it to a T. Right. And well, acceptance hasn't happened yet. Well, I guess it has. 
No, it hasn't because it's been another loss. It's been like, we keep thinking it's going to be better, but oh, it's not better. So it sort of re-kicks uh, and pushes back into the other other stage. So anyway, so you're out traveling. You're, yeah. you're speaking at churches and congregations at different events. I just, you know, would prepare like I normally would prepare in terms of, you know, here we go. And then, you know, be ready for a certain kind of talk to occur on a Saturday afternoon after I've had too little sleep and too much sugar for lunch and that kind of thing, right? And and just be ready for the various times. It's normal things you anticipate as a speaker. And when it came to the younger generation, I was caught off guard. And the first time I was caught off guard, it was fantastic because my daughter-in-law was with me, who is, you know, in her young 20s. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? Are they, is it just me? Or are they like uber hungry? And so I just, you know, she was like, absolutely. And she said to me, this was her phrase. She said, they just don't know. It was like this sense of like, they don't have the basics. They don't have the foundation of faith. So, okay, whatever that was, I put that in the category because it was the first one of, well, they were just special. It was a special group. Mm. So then what happened was I went to three more universities after that. And then I had one sort of, you know, campus crusade event, which was the confluence of a whole bunch of universities. And I'm telling you, every one of them, I kept being stunned. Like I'm used to what it feels like to speak to, they were like, no, let's go. No, let's stay longer. No, let's go deeper into that. And so even on the one that was like on Sunday morning, I'm coming and I'm supposed to bat up, bat clean up after this. They've had this weekend, this unbelievable intensity. Yeah, right. I know what it's like to try to speak on a Sunday morning after they've been at a camp all weekend. You know, <laughs> and they haven't slept for two nights straight. And so I had truncated my talk to be appropriate to what that space was. When I came in Sunday morning, it was truly in and of itself a spiritual experience to watch them be like, no, I don't want this to end without getting every, like wringing out every bit of God's truth and every bit of what God has for me here in a way that I have never seen in 30 years. And that was, that was the same thing. And I was in various regions of the country. It wasn't in just one region and there was diversity in those young people. So it was incredible. No, you know, that reminds me of of hearing people tell stories of the former Soviet Union or the Middle East today or China today, where there is this hunger for the basics. And once right. the basics are established, there is this immediate desire to go deep into those and to just keep digging and keep digging and keep digging. Like I, you hear stories of people in China now. I have a friend who was there and and they would be like, we're just going to, we're just going to need you to lecture from 8 a.m. to midnight if you could. And just let's start at the beginning of the Bible and cover as much as we can. It Incredible. feels like that. Oh, yeah. Well, and so, you know, of course, the analyst in me is like, what am I experiencing? You know, right. Of course, is this like a remnant thing, right? There's that scriptural support for that. What's happening? And just very, very clearly, it was they're unmoored. They're unmoored. Okay, it's talk about this like, more. Be, be who you want to be. They're in the whole time of be who you want to be. Oh, leaders? No, don't listen to leaders. They're, they're just targets to be shot at. Literally, just be who you want to be. And, and that's a different message, Noel, than discover who you are. So this whole idea, just believe what you want to believe. It's okay. Go with your feelings. Be who you want to be. Just, you know, that kind of thing. And what's happened is like, they're hungry for like, no, we actually crave boundaries on purpose. Like when we're, when we're transitioning from being a toddler, right? A two-year-old is going to go, no, no, yes, no, me, mine. Because it's the first time they actually realize, oh, 
I have to figure out how big I am and how small I am compared to the rest of you. And so all of that no and yes and me and mine is pushing out to where do I end and you begin? And there's a certain sense in which culturally when it comes to this identity formation, faith formation, it's like there's no sense of me being able to push far enough to be able to have something push back on me so I can know where I end and something else begins. And that's left a generation, I think, absolutely tumbling about confused. And so when you said in your question to me, you know, do you, do you think that they're negative towards spiritual things? I think, no, they're negative towards being told what to believe and what to do. Of course, that's characteristic of every generation, but especially this one. That's what they're negative towards, not spiritual things. There's this reputation that, you know, millennials and Zoomers have of being skeptical of institutions and skeptical of authorities. How do you then, <laughs> when you have uh, this kind of confluence of, you have this skepticism of authorities and institutions and this desire to figure out where the boundaries are, how do you speak to people in that? So this is very interesting. I would have never thought about this picture but literally, as I sat down with you and I thought, I probably need to think about this a little bit more. I was like, okay, so if he asks me, what do they want? Like this, this kind of question, like if they don't want to be told what to do, but they're unmoored, what do they want? And I was like, the only thing that came to my mind right here for you in this space was like, well, but they're all open to being guided by a humble bro, by somebody who's like, listen, I know I'm older than you, but we're all on a journey and I'm still on my journey. And I'm just like, here's my path and here's what I've discovered. And in discovering that it's allowed me to be a person who's more free, more victorious, more peaceful than I ever imagined than I certainly was in my twenties when I'm your age and you gotta figure it out for you, but that's just where mm. I am. And that's what's happened with me. And it's come through this vehicle of God's truth and blah, 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 all this kind of, I think there's a sense of like, no, they're willing for somebody to come alongside them, not stand in front of them and tell them where to go and what to do. Well, I think that you're a great model of that because you are approachable, you're vulnerable, and you are passionate about what is true. And a lot of times those things are sort of pit against one another. Someone who's passionate about what tr yeah. is true is not approachable and vulnerable. And I think that has been a hallmark of your ministry for 30 years. So let's let's keep going down this lane. This word deconstruction is being thrown out a lot right. these days. Do you see this movement as a as a negative thing, as a positive thing? Is it a natural kind of cycle of events in either human history or something that young people have to go through? Because of the lack of being able to really sink my teeth into thinking about this ahead of time, please don't take me at my full like words, don't get lost in my words. But just sitting here with you in this extemporaneously processing time, it's, I'm just like, okay, yes, deconstruction is almost a must for identity development as we come through our adolescence and go into young adulthood. And when I think about what deconstruction actually is, the definition is the categories and concepts that tradition has imposed on a word and the history behind them. It has to do with language. And I think that is so good. It's so good not to just accept a word for word's sake and then use it because we unintentionally, that's how we unintentionally hurt and harm people. That's why stereotypes and that kind of thing have been so harmful. So I think in that way, in terms of identity development and in terms of like looking at things that could be unintentionally harming and just why did that word come into existence? Why does that phrase exist in the first place? That is so necessary to the development of wholeness in the human soul. But 
but, but, but. I think when it comes to deconstructing for deconstructing sake, which is a lot what has become because we become a, become a very cause oriented place in the, in the space of lacking mooring, the, the message by various causes and movements has been, well, then moor yourself to this. And so people mm. that have moored themselves and become passionate about being deconstructionists, well, where, where does that take you? Like, have you ever, have you ever had somebody who's got one of those brains? Maybe it's you actually, who's got one of those brains who takes apart like a, an electronic thing. I know one of my kids took that apart one time, like his Walkman. You remember Walkmans? <laughs> he took apart a Walkman and literally every piece of it, he took it apart with the full intention of doing what? Putting put it back together. together. But once he took it apart, he, he could never put it back together again. And I'm like, it was actually rendered Ill, uh, unusable because of having deconstructed it so fully. And that's the thing is I found that people can get to that place. And so, yes, I think deconstructionism as a healthy movement is great, but there's, it has its limit just like anything healthy. And so when you deconstruct so far, then what you start to do is you can deconstruct your very own identity. And then you're like, wait a minute, who am I really? And then it bumps up against that existential thing that everybody has to go through. And instead of leading us to a healthy place, it actually leads us to a suicidal place, a place of desperation, a place of like, wait, then is there any reason for my existence? And so I think deconstruction for deconstruction's sake, and as a passion in your life, that's the only pursuit in your life, because you're just constantly reacting to things is quite dangerous, actually. And so I'll say it relates to what you call the central verse, I think, of the Recovering Hypocrite podcast, which is Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. The second part of that verse says what? Do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery and deconstruction in doing the very thing, the very hope of Galatians 5.1, which is taking us to a greater experience of freedom in Christ. But if it becomes the thing, if it becomes the God, then you have just been burdened by a yoke of slavery. It becomes its own thing of walking back into enslavement under the rubric of unenslavement. It's fascinating. Wow. Okay, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that like seven times. But for someone listening right now who is in the process of deconstructing and they are concerned about mooring themselves, tying themselves, chaining themselves to something, a church or a movement or a scripture or a religion or a belief system that may be archaic and authoritarian or have yeah. all this baggage to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, speak to that person. So what do they do? If they have grave concerns about the established authorities and the established institutions, and they're trying to figure out where to put their hope and where to put their, you know, what, what, what to, to, to lash their ship to, what, what do they do if not deconstruct? Um. Yeah, at this, at the risk of sounding reductionistic, it's actually the whole thing. Jesus said it over and over again, follow me, follow me, follow me. Like I think about when he was uh, the two disciples and one looked at the other one and said, well, wait a minute. What about him? Jesus said, you follow me. And we're just so busy looking to the left and to the right and trying to hook ourselves to people like we were made to be worshipers, right? And so we do fall immediately into worshiping, I don't care, influencers, athletes, I don't care, movie stars. We know we do that. We know we do. Let's be honest about our heart's proclivity to moor ourselves to people all the time. And Jesus is like, hey, it's me. 
yeah, that religion will, is great if it will help you find me. That person is awesome if by engaging with them, it causes you to engage with me. Hey, that system of belief and that way of walking, oh, I love it because it helps you hear me, see me, feel me, follow me, right? It's about him at the end of the day, though. It's like, if it's not helping you to know Christ better, it's not helping you. Yeah, just Jesus saying, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life, life in all its beautiful. fullness, or life abundantly. And I think every one of us, whether we realize it or not, we are searching desperately for that life. And it's why we grab onto all these things. And it's why we question things that seem to push us away from life. And man, I agree with you. Just go after Jesus and and love like Jesus loves. And Are you doing this on purpose? You're like baiting me right now. I'm this not trying like, to, but I would, I'll bait you all day long if we get some great content. Oh my <laughs> God, this is exactly it. Like if, if you're like saying, if the person back to the person who is deconstructing everything and who is like, but I, but I, I know I'm longing for something. It's right. It's follow your deepest soul longings. No, no, not what the society says are your deepest soul longings. But when you, when you silence the noise, oh yeah, you're being led home. When you can silence the noise, you know your heart longs for Revelation 21, uh, verse 5. There will come a day when there's no more pain, no more longing, uh, no more crying, no more dying, no more tears, right? It's like we know we long for perfection. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says eternity is set in our hearts. There is a perfection that we long for. If you follow that, if we could just set aside the noise and follow that, it leads us to right places. But instead, we don't realize we put expectations on a spouse that only a savior can fulfill. We put expectations on friends. We bring longings to friends. We bring things to friends that literally only the faithful one can do. Why? Because they're soul questions. And our spouse, no matter how long we've been married, can never know our soul to the degree that the author of our soul can. And our friends, no matter how long we've been friends, no matter how long, they can never know the latest thought that flits through our mind as we go to sleep. Only the lover of our soul, the maker of our soul, the author of our soul can answer our soul questions. And so it's like, when we take those soul questions wrong places, we're setting everybody in our life up for failure without realizing it. And we're setting ourselves up to be eternally disappointed and sad. And then questioning our very selves rather than realizing, oh my gosh, it's a mismatch. I'm trying to get the eternal satiated in the temporal. And just think about how much your human relationships are almost necessarily burdened by that pursuit and that when you pursue Jesus instead of pursuing these human relationships, now your human relationships can actually flourish. Yes. When when Jesus is who he's supposed to be in your life, when he's sitting on the throne he's supposed to sit on, then no one else can get onto that space because he occupies the whole dang thing. And now you can actually love other people and have relationships with other people without the expectation that they're going to be your savior, that perfect Jesus. You can, yeah. They can fail you and it's going to be okay because you're going to stumble along toward Jesus together. Oh, good. He said it. He who wants to save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life on economy will find it. It's like, if, if I am trying to claw to death my husband, get him to be that words of affirmation guy that he should be because that's what speaks to me or to get him to spend more time with me because I'm a quality time girl or whatever. Like, or my friend, does she not know? She's just gonna return my text, come on, right? It's like these things were like clawing or clawing or clawing. If you would just blank, if you would just blank, if you would just blank. And it's like, if I give that up and I give away the very thing that I long for, 
If I, if I want a hug, give it. If I want a word of encouragement, give it. If I want to be served or I want somebody to throw me a party, throw a party and invite everybody, serve all the people, right? It's like in giving away the very thing, guess what happens? Then I find the very thing I wanted all along, but it's only by giving it away. It's Jesus said it. It's exactly what you said. It's the inside outness Let of go. the gospel, right? And it, it's amazing to me when you trace your way through the New Testament and you look at the things that are described as sin, our culture will tell you, oh, all those things are about, you know, scripture invading my life and uh, scripture telling me that I can't have the things that I want. But if you, you really, really look at what, the, especially the New Testament describes as things that are sinful, it is when you violate the one anotherisms, right? Come on. When, when you're not about Jesus and you're not about one another. It's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. When you don't do those things, that's what's sinful. And so what happens is when you're really going after Jesus, your relationship will change with all these other people. And it won't be about what you gain, but what you can give. For the deconstructionist, it's like, oh my goodness. Yes, please do that. It helps you unmoor from other people and stops. It, it keeps you from putting people in the place that only God can be. And it unhitches you and uncouples you from the places in which you've been looking for life that you cannot find life. Deconstruct away. As long as it allows you then the freedom to pursue and be and understand Christ for who he says he is, who he shows himself to be, all that good stuff. Okay. So with all of this said, there still are very real ways in which the church, in which institutions, in which pastors and those authorities have harmed people. And there's a lot oh, yeah. of conversation these days around power dynamics. Ella. And it feels like the church is behind the curve on having those conversations. So when culture is plowing ahead on this, this terribly important ground, and the church yeah. seems to be lagging behind. How do we start having the right conversations about that? I don't know. It's just such a huge question. It's so, you know, so many churches are so different. Like, so the listener may not know this, but um, in my counseling practice, I predominantly see people in ministry. And so it's fascinating how some folks in ministry still don't realize, like, you can't say that. You, lead person, can't say that right? Because that triggers people. I mean, that's a word everybody knows now. Why does everybody know what a trigger is? We didn't used to know what a trigger was. Why does everybody have that in their vocabulary? A trigger has to do with this idea of the sights and smells and sounds of something in the present pulling up a past reaction. It came from the PTSD world, which is like, you know, when somebody, I remember years ago when I was standing next to my friend who had served in the Vietnam War and a table fell over beside him. I am telling you what, the reaction was not like any human reaction you and I would ever had. It was a completely trauma reaction. And then he was not well for the next three or four months until he got himself situated again. That's how the word trigger came to be. That's a truest kind of trigger. And so today it's like, don't you understand, pastor, that when you say blank from up front or when you say blank sort of sweeping statement, it reminds me of the way in which my dad would scream at me. It reminds me of the way in which, you know, I was bullied in school because I was a person with this color skin. It reminds me, right, right. And so I think it starts with the person at the top being able to say, where is power in our church? How am I unaware of 
being the person in the power seat and how do I need to become more aware? You know, uh, that's all I think. I think because do you actually believe that the person that seems quite unintelligent and has, has a se severe struggles even has the same Holy Spirit as you? <laughs> you know, do you actually understand that the only reason you are in that position is because you had access, whereas somebody never had access, they would have given anything to have the kind of training that you had, but instead they had to go a totally different path. They would, they, they would have been a way better passion. I don't know. Just this, just the sense of like, okay, it's got to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. So for instance, when I have couples come into my office, it's great. One of the first questions I ask them is like, who has the power in your relationship? Oh, it's a fantastic. It's fantastic. No kidding. It's great. And then they, they look at each other and they, it's funny. They usually use either answer right away and they say the same person, you know, they both point to one of them <laughs> or they go, well, wait, what kind of power are we talking about? It starts the conversation immediately. Wow. And then they go to like, oh, you mean emotionally? Okay, well, emotionally, blah, blah holds the power. But when it comes to decision-making and like mm. hard things, blah, blah holds the power. When it comes to the tone in the house, so-and-so holds the power. It's fantastic to just start talking about it. So I don't know, that's kind of maybe your counselor's yeah. canned answer, which is, I don't know, start talking about it. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm going to completely change directions because now I want to go to the other side to to pastors and leaders and there are a lot of leaders pastors and churches and other leaders in, in ministry that are really struggling right now and oh the flip side is is they're trying to figure out how to deal with all this stuff the whole world i say stuff everything happening in the post-covid world um what has your experience been like um, without obviously betraying any confidences, uh, just yeah. meeting with and counseling and talking to pastors and leaders. Are you getting the same sense that I am? It seems, I hate the word because it's the 2020 word we should never use again. It seems unprecedented in my 20 years of ministry, the, the, the number of leaders that are struggling right now. No, I, I don't know what to do with you right now because again, you're baiting me. And I'm like, do you want a two hour podcast? Because in all forthrightness and depth of sincerity. It is unprecedented. That word cannot be overused about this particular situation. I have counseled for 29, maybe 30, I don't know, now years. And my, my client load has been predominantly those people in ministry of all different forms and types and regions and fashions and sizes of ministry and approaches to ministry and approaches to, I mean, it's the diversity of diversities when it comes to that. And I do mean that. And in the literal sense. And I've just never had a year in counseling like this past year. Never, never, never. Ministers, campus workers, missionaries, counselors, politicians, doctors. This is my client load. Societal influencers. They are hurting and burnt out and quitting. So why do you think that is? Why right now do you think leaders are feeling that way are they just feeling it more now is there something societally going on that's just causing the is it always the pressure always been that bad what do you think it is okay so i don't want people to get lost in my particular words and my particular cross-section like i am sensitive to the fact that i'm speaking from my own data points i'm not trying to make broad broad base discussion points right now and i don't want to be misquoted to be honest i literally am speaking from my data points which is a, it's a subsection of a place where people share their most vulnerable heart 
right? In a safe and uh, legally protected space. To that end, what I'm finding is leaders can't lead because they're targeted. And what I mean by targeted is like in this society where the tributaries in the river have to do with blame shifting and ownership is at a low, an all-time low. Victimization and the feeling of being a victim and the word trauma is being flung around like a piece of bread. It's at an all-time high. And then we all had this universal experience of having to face the unknown. A pandemic we did not know, we still don't know, but particularly back then, we did not know, am I going to live or die? What is this going to mean? Is life ever going to go back to normal? Are people that I know going to die? What's going to be like if I get it, if I don't get it? And on, am I going to have money? Is our society going to collapse? I mean, I don't know. we all face the unknown. So we had all these emotions, predominantly the experience of anxiety, and nowhere to put it, and nowhere to process it. And then we have this thing that happens within that same space, which is a highlighting of systemic injustice in ways and in spaces that brought out pain upon pain. And then that pain triggered other people's pain in similar ways and similar spaces. And then what happened was like, yeah, the other tributary going on is, you know, right now in our life, leaders are like distrusted more than ever, right? So all of that has led to Instead of believe you, I'm going to question you. Instead of follow you, I'm going to throw things at you. And instead of think your intentions are good and, and think that you might be, have something to offer me, I'm going to think that I'm just as wise as you. And you're going to be a nice place to offload my stress and anxiety. And particularly people in the church, because they don't feel like they can fight back. Because <laughs> mm. we have to be so quote unquote nice. So I didn't say that very well, but that's what's going on. As leaders can't lead, their hands are tied. So one small example is my very own husband. I'll be honest. He gave, he's been a pastor for 30 years. He gave a message. Oh, I don't know. A year and a half ago, year ago, year and a half ago. I don't know. He gave a message and, and, and he got a call after the message. And the person said, because of what you said in your message, you are clearly of this political party. And so I'm no longer going to come to church. Three hours later, he got an email from a person that said, because of your message today, you are so clearly of the, get this, no, uh -huh, the opposite, opposite party. political party. Welcome to my inbox. So that I am not, I'm, I'm quitting coming to your church. Literally one of them said one of the political parties and the other one said the opposite. And it was the same exact message. People are just, they felt powerless. They didn't know where to take it. They didn't know where to take their anxiety. And we all want just a, a, a release. And leaders have become targets to offload that on and to even shoot at in times where powerlessness feels at an all-time high. I don't think it's intentional, but it's been devastating. So what we have is we have leaders that you know are targeted. We have everyone who is triggered. We have a global psychological trauma where we Come all on. have PTSD. And yet, I'm just Calvinist enough to believe <laughs> that God is still sovereign, that Jesus is still on his throne, that he's not up in glory, biting his fingernails, worried about what's going to happen next. Well, not to sound over-spiritual, but it's real that at the beginning of the pandemic, the Lord, like whoa, stuck in my spirit so hard, so strong, stuck in my face, so to speak, however you want to say it, whatever your language is, Isaiah 43, 19. 
behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And I am like, that is to my own heart first. And that is to a city and then to a state, then to a nation. I'm like, yeah, what's he doing in the American church? What's he doing in my heart? He is refining. He is stripping off things. He wants true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. He doesn't want people who, when you cut them, they bleed word and they hate the spirits movement and they don't look for the spirits movement. He, he wants to take people who were so all about the spirit that it led to an emotional experience. And we went after the experience to be more grounded in the word. It's like, he's, he's doing it. He's doing a new thing. He's bringing us back to, is it about me? Is the whatever fill in the blank? Is it about me? Or is it about how you feel about it? And what your desires are. So anyhow, we're both preaching. Tammy, here's the thing. I've done this a couple times in the history of this podcast, and I just really want to do it now. I would like to close the podcast with you praying for the people listening. Oh, would you that would just, be my joy would, and would honor. I'm just, overwhelmed with that. Just wrap us up by praying for everybody who is listening right now. God, I thank you that each one that is here, each one that is under the sound of my voice and Noel's voice, they're under you. They're yours. You know him. You know her. You see her. him. You see her. You say in your word, you know every thought that he or she is having right now and certainly every feeling. And the ones that are alone, the experience of aloneness just continues to press. The experience of feeling like never enough. Even the ones that are in ministry who have listened to this and they're like, yeah, but I still feel like I have no way out. I'm suffocated by the environment. The ones who feel like the never enough is, is still their everyday existence. And everything in between, Lord, the ones that feel abandoned, the ones that feel betrayed, the ones that just simply feel afraid all the time. You're his God, you're her God. And you're saying, come to me, to all of us, to each longing heart. You're saying, I know, I am the one who put that longing there. And I just pray, Lord, you would teach us to follow our longings to right places that are truly life-giving rather than the wrong places that we know. <laughs> They're sucking the life out of us. Would you make everyone that has listened to this podcast, would you deposit in them just a greater sense of discernment to their own selves, a greater sense of understanding of their own longings, a greater sense of decidedness about their own identity and purpose and that they get it that you're just phenomenally excited about the them that you made them to be that you love him you love the way you made him you love you delight in the way you made her they're absolutely lovely to you so would we seek to find ourselves in you would we seek to live in you and so whether that involves a path of deconstruction a path of frustration with leaders who have hurt us, a path of uncoupling from idols we have made even of our own heart and of people in our lives. Would you continue that fire of refinement that you would do the new thing in us and that we would perceive it? So I pray a blessing on each one that has listened through even this long prayer <laughs> for each one that has listened through this podcast and the twists and turns it's taken more than anything. I pray he or she would sense your pleasure over them pleasure the pleasure of god is yours dear one and so jesus i pray you would fill the space with your nearness you are the wonderful counselor you are the comforter and if we didn't need comfort you wouldn't have given us a comforter god 
So I pray for that comfort even now. So thank you for this vehicle. Thank you for Noel. And we do pray, Lord, your blessing even on him as he wants to continue to provide a space for people to feel safe and recover their hypocrisy <laughs> as we all are in you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.